talk is about the four heavenly messengers. It is said that the Buddha's father, a king, decided that his son must never see anything that could disturb his mind. He arranged for his son to live in three different palaces. He had a palace for the rains, he had the palace for the summer, and he had a palace for the winter. He lived an extraordinarily protected life, and it also was a life of great comfort and pleasure. He never left the palace. One day, someone told him that there were some beautiful gardens outside of the palace. The gardens were filled with wondrous flowers and birds and lakes and fountains. So he decided to visit these gardens. The king proclaimed that the whole city should be cleaned and decorated, as well as whatever might remind the prince of old age, disease, and death must be removed. So the whole city was cleaned. A young deva caused an old decrepit man to appear before the prince as he drove through the streets. The man was bald and his teeth were gone. His body was bent over and he gasped with pain. The prince was totally shocked and asked how it happened that the man looked like that and what it was called. The driver replied that this man is what is called old. (laughs) The prince proceeded to ask many questions about old age, if it happened to everything that lives. He also began to realize that old age would happen to himself. He was deeply disturbed and he couldn't go on to the gardens and he returned to the palace. The king was worried and he increased the many sensual pleasures that the prince had in the palace. This happened four times. Each time the prince decided to go out to go to some beautiful forest or garden he had heard about, the king made sure no suffering or old age or disease or death appeared before the prince. And each time a deva conjured up an image before the prince as he drove. First someone old, then diseased, and then dead. And each time the prince was deeply troubled. He thought, when an untaught, ordinary person who is subject to aging, not safe from aging, sees another who is aged, one is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted, for one forgets that he or she is no exception. But I too am subject to aging, not safe from aging, And so it cannot befit me to be shocked, 
humiliated and disgusted on seeing another who was aged. When I considered this, the vanity of youth left me. When the prince considered not being safe from sickness and death in the same way, the vanity of health and the vanity of life itself also left him. He said, I become frightened and greatly alarmed when I reflect on the dangers of old age, death, and disease. I find neither peace nor contentment, for the world looks to me as if it's ablaze with an all-consuming fire. If people have grasped that death is inevitable, and if, if nevertheless greed arises in their hearts, then they must surely have an iron will not to weep in this great danger. The prince went out one more time, and a deva caused a wanderer who wore a yellow robe to appear before him. He asked the driver who this was, who walked with a mind more peaceful than peace itself. This was the fourth heavenly messenger. The driver responded that this was a samana, one who has become peaceful. The prince soon decided to become a renunciate. The king grieved, and he tried desperately to keep his son from leaving home. The prince responded to his father that he knew that his father loved him greatly, but that he had to go and that he wouldn't change his mind. He said to his father, a wise person regards their friends and relatives just as fellow travelers, each one going along the same road, but soon to be separated as each goes to their own place. And if you speak to me about a fit time and an unfit time for becoming a samana, my answer is that the demon death knows nothing of one time or another, but is busy gathering victims at all times. So the prince left his comfortable and luxurious life and became a monk after seeing the four heavenly messengers. Someone old, someone sick, someone dead, and a samana. These messengers inspired him to wake up from his strong involvement in sensual pleasures and to use his time wisely. He saw the world as an all-consuming fire. I see this as his realization of the urgency to seek understanding and freedom. We have all met and will continue to meet the four heavenly messengers, and they can be very inspiring and transforming encounters. 
Whenever our bodies break down, or strong physical sensations occur, there can be a lot of resistance, feelings that it isn't fair, that if only we didn't have these strong sensations, then we could really do our practice. I would like to share a particularly inspiring experience A close friend of mine had worked at a wonderful camp for the handicapped several summers. One of the women at the camp had cerebral palsy, as well as several other major physical difficulties. She has almost no control of any of the muscles in her body. She can only move her eyelids and her eyes some of her neck muscles, and a few, just a few of her swallowing muscles. She can't speak, and she can't move her arms or her legs. She's completely dependent on other people for being fed and bathed, toileted, dressed, and any other attention that she might get. She communicates with an alphabet that involves blinking her eyes and moving her eyes a certain way for each letter. She has a brilliant mind and a powerful will. My friend and I offered to care for her if she wanted to come to do a retreat here. We were both on staff and had saved up the sitting time so it would be a retreat for us as well. We decided to split the care for her. He would feed her, and I would care for her other personal needs. And then we would take take turns sitting and walking with her. And we were also intending to do the retreat. I had never met her before or been involved with anyone as severely physically handicapped before. It was quite an intense course for all of us, for the yogis and the teacher of that course as well. What struck me most about her was her courage and her humor. She completely put herself in my care for her most intimate needs of bathing and clothing and toilet and she had never met me. And she had only heard of retreats by letters from my friend. Each day as we got quieter, I kept seeing more and more fully how little control she has. She could never, not even once, brush one fly that landed on her away. She was quite heavy for me to lift, and I was quite awkward at it. Sometimes as I tried to lift her from from her wheelchair to the toilet or to the bed, we would both fall onto the floor, or I would bang her head on the toilet again and again. I would really feel terrible when I did this, and she would just smile or laugh. 
and she would usually have me laughing at the situation. After our nightly fall onto the floor, I finally broke down in tears. I just, it was just too much. Uh, and I asked her how she could stand her condition, how she could stand all these years of having a body like this. And she smiled and blinked out. You get used to it. Her greatest teaching to me was her fearlessness. She's really basically ready for anything, and she'll try just about anything, because she has very little to lose, and she knows it. Sometimes when my body breaks down, and I ever feel like it's a limitation, I remember how much freer this woman is than most people I know. Her body had brought her much agony, and yet she taught me how free one can be within such seeming impossible limitations. She knew a lot about letting go. Ajahn Chah says that the teaching that most people least understand and which conflicts most with their opinions is this teaching of letting go. It's as if we are carrying a heavy rock. After a while, we begin to feel its weight, but we don't know how to let it go. So we endure this heavy burden all the time. If someone tells us to throw it away, we say, if I throw it away, I won't have anything left. If told of all the benefits to be gained from throwing it away, we wouldn't believe them, but would keep thinking, if I throw it away, I will have nothing. So we keep on carrying this heavy rock until we become so weak and exhausted that we can no longer endure, and then we drop it. <laughs> Having dropped it, we suddenly experience the benefits of letting go. We immediately feel better and lighter, and we know for ourselves how much of a burden carrying a rock can be. Before we let go of the rock, we couldn't possibly know of the benefits of letting go. So this heavenly messenger of disease or sickness is very important. Most of us are so fortunate, and yet we forget. We forget to use our precious moments here on earth with this precious birth, wisely. The second heavenly messenger is old age. 
My mother became what is called terminally ill when I was young and was sick for many years before she died. Probably the most powerful experience that we have in our lifetime, besides our own death, is watching our parents grow old and then die. There is something that becomes very final about our aloneness then. Whereas as children, there is a kind of innocence in not grasping how impermanent all that lives is. Yet it is our effort to face this impermanence, to face old age and death, and to live with it, that enables us to live more fully and freely. There is a part of a poem that to me quite poignantly touches the heart of old age and death in our lives. It is a poem written by a father to his baby daughter. You scream, waking from a nightmare. When I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up and hold you up in the moonlight, you cling to me hard as if clinging could save us. I think you think I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars even as my broken arms heal themselves around you. I have heard you tell the sun, don't go down. I have stood by as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die. I would blow the flame out of your silver cup. I would suck the rot from your fingernail. I would brush your sprouting hair of the dying light. I would scrape the rust off your ivory bones. I would help death escape through the little ribs of your body. I would alchemize the ashes of your cradle back into wood. I would let nothing go of you, ever. And yet perhaps this is the reason you cry. This is the nightmare you wake screaming from, being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. It was while watching my mother become more and more dependent and unable to do all the things that the other mothers I knew do, that first inspired me to seek times alone in the quietness of nature, and then eventually to begin this path of meditation. It was so painful to watch her losing control, to see the amount of pain she was in. As a child, it was nearly unbearable 
And I had to find some context for it. Ramdas has said, for something in you dies when you bear the unbearable. And it is only in the dark night of the soul that you are prepared to see as God sees and to love as God loves. About six years ago, I found a huge snapping turtle that had just been hit by a car. Its shell was completely broken and it was suffering terribly and it didn't have long to live. I carried it to a pine tree and sat by it for a while. I wanted to put it out of its misery, I thought. I didn't kill it. I wanted to. I stayed there until it died. But that experience really troubled me, and I couldn't let it go. It was only recently that I saw that my feelings in that situation were very similar to how I felt when my mother all too quickly grew older and was dying. It was so hard for me to accept that she was having to suffer like that. It seemed so unfair and I felt so helpless. I was having so much aversion to her pain but I didn't know that at the time. When we see that each moment we can open to whatever's happening, we can open to each moment of loss and of fear and of sorrow, whether it's a tooth loss or a body breaking down or whatever, that these moments are actually opportunities to awaken then we no longer have to be victims of these situations and these situations become workable. Old age can be a very difficult time because when our body breaks down in earlier years we usually comfort ourselves with the idea of getting better. But there is no cure for old age. It can be a time to let go of one's usual busyness and distractions and see the preciousness of each moment that is left. Many parts of the body just don't work as they used to. So too, one's usual props that brought pleasure and fulfillment don't work anymore. So one has to look inside for happiness and peace. It is a great time of one's life if one slows down and awakens. It can be similar to being here on retreat in that one's usual props that boost up our sense of I, all the numerous things that we do to support our idea of I, and all the numerous little things that we do to feel good about ourselves and all the many pleasures aren't here for us. Even one's laundry is done here. So 
so that one has to one has the opportunity to look more closely at what is really happening moment by moment one has the opportunity to learn to open to seeming unbearable or unworkable times instead of filling these moments with doing or pleasure one learns about just being just being alert just being soft with each moment just as it is there is so much emphasis on the pleasure of youth in this culture that when the balding or the graying or the teeth getting lost or the skin wrinkling can be very painful to face the aging and decay of the body if our idea of ourselves and if our happiness is dependent on how our bodies function and look then our well-being is given quite a test when old age occurs and if we are inspired by the heavenly messenger of old age we can look closely at our mortality and then we can begin developing a contentment that isn't dependent on anything a well-being that is unshakable even in the late evening of life when everything that we have held on to becomes a lie the third heavenly messenger that the prince saw was a dead person there is something quite awesome about a corpse a cold unmoving body that once was flowing with warmth and vitality there is a story of a woman named krishna gotami whose only son died in her grief she carried her dead child to the neighbors asking for medicine to cure her son people thought she had gone crazy she went to the buddha and asked him for medicine to cure her son he answered i will help you but first i want a handful of mustard seed but the mustard seed must be taken from a house where no one has lost a child a husband a parent or a friend each mustard seed must be taken from a house which has not known death she went from house to house in the village and asked did a son or a daughter a father or a mother die in your family and they answered her alas the living are few but the dead are many do not remind us of our deepest grief there wasn't one house where a loved one hadn't been lost 
after some time of despair and hopelessness, Krishna Gautami finally saw that beings in this world cannot avoid dying. She buried her son and returned to the Buddha to learn his teaching. Living brings you to death. There is no other road. There is no greater teacher than this road of death. And we never know when our bodies are going to die. The American Indians had a great saying that this is a great day to die. Let's be silent for a few moments. great moment to die. Next to our death at any moment, what thought can really be so important? Can we really act as if we are going to die this next moment or tomorrow? This awareness has the potential of really cleaning up our act. This great teacher, death, can help us cut through our complacency. Death can support us to look at our fear instead of to avoid our fear. Death can help us to find our courage in the face of loss. And in that way, death can help us to find our love. Death can become our most intimate friend. There are two ways we can look at death. From the perspective of the physical body dying, and also from the moment-to-moment arising and passing away perspective. Let's begin with the first perspective, that of the body. We then must ask, what is the body? If one walks into the forest and sits down and looks at the different trees growing, one can see that even on the healthiest tree, there are many dead branches, dead needles or dead leaves. And many trees are crooked and bent. And if one looks even more closely at even one leaf, one can see insect burrows and fungus and tiny nests and holes. There is a constantly changing process of birth and death even on one leaf in one tree. Yet, when we think of our own bodies, we have resistance to thinking of ourselves 
as the constantly changing process of life and death, moment by moment. What is the body anyway? What is birth and death? When we have our hair cut or our nails are cut and the hairs and the nails fall to the floor, do we say that that's me on the floor? When we take a bite from a banana and start chewing it, does that piece of banana become me? And when we wash the dead skin cells from our body, do we say that that's me going down the drain? There is a saying from Kuan Yin. She says, the winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? The whole universe and our bodies are a constantly changing process. And the winds of change are constantly blowing. But across empty phenomena, is it really my body, my hair, my banana, It is our thinking that this is my body, or I, or me, that creates all the suffering in our lives. It doesn't mean that we don't take care of the body, or other beings' bodies. And we all do want to be healthy. If the mind is clear, though, One sees through the attachment to this body as being mine. And this cuts through craving. The greatest teaching for me when my body breaks down is that I see that I'm not the body. And it's a great relief. Srinazar Gadara says, I was never born, and I'm not going to die. He is uncompromising. He insists that he is not his body, and he asks us to please not to accuse him of being born. There is this constantly changing process and it blows across emptiness. Whom can this process harm? The other perspective of death that is very helpful for opening to the actual physical loss of our bodies is seeing on a more microscopic level the arising and passing of each moment. When one sits quietly and starts watching each moment of consciousness, one sees that every moment is changing. Every moment the object that appears is moving. This world of consciousness 
is a world of constant change and infinite insecurity. Once an object has arisen, no matter how hard one tries, one cannot stop it from passing away. If one is very quiet, one can see that whatever appears is so transitory that it doesn't even last for one moment. Objects become more and more phantom-like and dissolve instantly. One sees that whatever appears in this world is not dependable that there is no refuge in conditioned phenomena. If one sees this clearly, even if one sees it for just one moment, the illusion of pleasure is broken. Even if it's just one moment that one sees this, it's incredibly powerful. Because when one sees this clearly, then desire or craving for happiness from sensual objects cannot arise. This is when love becomes courage. And love is not just pleasure. One has broken through the pleasure-pain syndrome or samsara. Rilke calls happiness that quick gain of an approaching loss. This can seem very dismal. This flowing constant change where there is not one solid place to take any kind of lasting foothold. And yet these insights into the nature of change make space in the mind for a deeper happiness to arise. This brings us to the fourth heavenly messenger, the Samana, or the one who has become peaceful. What does renunciation have to do with opening to loss? opening to old age, sickness, or death. The seasons constantly come and go, spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Just like birth, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, old age, and death, Autumn is a wonderful time to do a retreat. It is a time within the seasons of letting go. The leaves, the insects, the birds and the flowers, they all grow quiet and slow down. And it's time to go inside deeply to be silent and rest. Autumn is the time leading to winter 
a time of rest and renewal. Renunciation is like autumn. It's a time of letting go and allowing the mind to rest, to become soft and relaxed and still. It is from this stillness that we can renew our dusty and distorted perception of what is really happening. To see how we've been caught in the illusion of happiness as pleasure. One takes time to see the wanting mind clearly. To see how tormented and oppressed by desire we are. And we learn how to cool out, to let go. This renunciation or restraint is a protection. Renunciation comes about through mindfulness. Through renunciation, the mind becomes soft and pliable and wide and expansive. Greed, hatred, and delusion make the mind tense and hard and unyielding. There is a saying, carelessness leads to death, and carefulness leads to deathlessness. This carefulness is the crux of developing a true happiness. Are our lives a search for pleasure, for the body's sake? Or are our lives motivated to see more deeply than constantly succumbing to what is occurring at our sense doors? This mindfulness or carefulness allows us to be truly ready to open to whatever arises. It allows us to develop a mind that is ready for anything. Because everything is constantly changing. We are open to each moment. Each moment we are opening and letting go. Each moment we are renouncing. We are constantly flowing with what is happening. The peace comes from accepting the constant change, knowing that there is no me there. The renunciation is being still and paying attention. The motivation in the mind is so important. If one is paying attention to just be with whatever is happening, then there is such peace because the happiness isn't based on what is happening. One sees that whatever appears is illusory, just a process, and there isn't a constant reaction to it. It is this carefulness that cuts through samsara, that cuts through old age, disease, and death. 
When craving for a pleasant feeling occurs, then naturally craving for the pleasant object will occur if there isn't careful attention. And if aversion for an unpleasant feeling occurs, then naturally aversion for the unpleasant object will occur. For example, if one hears someone sneezing, and if one has an unpleasant feeling with it, and one doesn't notice it, then there will be aversion to the sneeze, and then there will be aversion to the person who sneezed. If one isn't careful, a battle will begin, and the need to defend and to protect arises. When one doesn't see that it's just a sound arising and passing, we just never know what is going to happen. So we try to protect this phony territory, me, and we become more and more miserable. This is being an egoholic. <laughs> an egoholic is under the dangerous mercy of pleasurable and painful feelings, under the influence of greed, hatred, and delusion that arises from not being careful. What renunciation is, is a cleansing of the mind and a beautification of the heart. It's an awesome task. It's an awesome task to develop a mind so clear to be able to see thoughts just as thoughts, feelings just as feelings, sensations just as sensations. To be able to see the process and not to have to constantly defend and protect. One can take refuge in carefulness one can take a refuge in a quiet mind and a quiet heart. The Buddha said, disease robs the human body of its beauty, weakens the senses, the faculties, and strength, and puts an end to wealth and welfare. It brings on the day of death and of rebirth. Every creature, the fairest, the most beloved, disappears forever, like a leaf or fruit fallen into a stream. It is whirled away and lost forever to our eyes. At the end, people are by themselves and unaided. They wander on with only one possession, the fruits of their karma. There can be a lot of inspiration and encouragement from the Buddha's meeting with the four heavenly messengers. We can keep developing our minds to be alert and soft and able to be just with what's happening, moment by moment. If we see each moment sharply and clearly, 
then there is a greater happiness and comfort deepens in the mind. One is becoming more and more awake and truly alive, accepting the totality of life and not just what I want. Here on retreat, it really doesn't matter where one is or what one is doing, sitting, walking, listening, eating, brushing one's hair, whatever. Everywhere is equally important. It's important to pay attention. Our job is to keep the mind awake and shining. Breath, body, sounds will come and go, and none of it is ours. Knowing that none of it is ours is renunciation. It's just constant contact dissolving over and over. Just let the images and sensations come and go, blowing across emptiness. Whom can they harm? When we avoid, we, we perpetuate fear. When we open fully, courage arises and fear vanishes. Sometimes everything will vanish in the silence of non-reaction. Each moment is precious when we know that birth and death arise and passes in each moment. Every moment is just as it is, and nothing need be otherwise. I'd like to close with a passage from Ajahn Shah. You should know that that which is arising and passing away is only the activity of the mind. When something arises, it passes away and is followed by further arising and passing away. In the way of Dhamma, we call this arising and passing away, birth and death. And this is everything. This is all there is. When suffering has arisen, it passes away. When it passes away, suffering arises again. There's just suffering arising and passing away. <laughs> when you see this much, you'll be able to know constantly this arising and passing away. And when your knowing is constant, you'll see that that is really all there is. 
Everything is just birth and death. It's not as if there is anything which carries on. There's just this arising and passing away as it is. That's all. This kind of seeing will give rise to a tranquil feeling of dispassion towards the world. Such a feeling arises when we see that actually there is nothing worth wanting. There is only arising and passing away, a being born followed by a dying. This is when the mind arrives at letting go, letting everything go according to its own nature. Things arise and pass away in our mind, and we know. When happiness arises, we know. When dissatisfaction arises, we know. And this knowing happiness means that we don't identify with it as being ours. And likewise, with dissatisfaction and unhappiness, we don't identify with them as being ours. When we no longer identify with and cling to happiness and suffering, we are simply left with the natural way of things. So may the four heavenly messengers inspire you. <laughs>